Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Last weekend, deadly mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, sent the country yet again into a national conversation about gun safety and violent tragedy. In the wake of these shootings, President Trump has faced controversy over his approach to a president's traditional role as consoler and healer of a nation grieving. Trump offered a unifying message in speeches read from scripts and teleprompters, but he did so on the backdrop of more than two years of demonizing minorities and inflaming racial animus in America. This moment illustrates Trump's limitations in comforting the nation after tragedy. Beyond comfort, it also sheds light on what a president can and cannot do to affect gun violence in this country. This week, Trump has publicly and privately considered a handful of ideas, things like background checks for gun purchases and red flag laws to keep guns out of the hands of those who might be dangerous. But Trump has suggested action on gun control in the past, only to later backtrack when the pressure lowers and the tragedies fade from the headlines. Will this time be different? How much can Trump even do when it's up to Congress to make the laws in our country? And how can a president's influence affect members of his party on a major issue? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. I turned to my colleague, White House reporter Sung Min Kim, to help me understand the state of gun-related legislation in this country. I asked her which tools a president can employ to affect gun reform. Well, the president has such a powerful tool, the bully pulpit. And basically, he can make the public case for any sort of gun legislation, whether it be expanded background checks, these so-called red flag laws that have become part of the conversation since the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, even some aggressive things like an assault weapons ban, although that is clearly not on the agenda anytime soon. There are some things that his administration can do by itself. And sources have told us that the president is exploring some sort of executive action. We saw an example of of that earlier this year when the Justice Department actually used administrative actions to ban bump stocks, which is what we had seen used in the previous mass shootings to turn a regular weapon into a semi-automatic one. But otherwise, um, there are a lot of legal questions out there. So the safest route always for any president is to make legislative changes. And a lot of that comes from, again, the president using his bully pulpit. And also, particularly for President Trump, because he is so popular within the Republican Party and re- with the base, giving Republicans Republican lawmakers cover to vote for these kinds of bills because Republican lawmakers could say, well, I don't want to get on the wrong side of the NRA, but if President Trump is for it and he is a Republican president, then maybe I can vote for it too. And just briefly to expand on the idea of executive actions, we've seen presidents use executive actions to address gun reform in this country a little bit. 
A little bit. And there, there was an Obama era rule um, that dealt with certain people with mental illnesses and them having access to guns. But it was actually one of the first regulations that was overturned by the Trump administration and with Republican uh, control of Congress. Um, they were able to do that pretty quickly on, I believe it was February 2017. And that shows the danger of acting on your own because you could have a Democratic president propose certain regulations, but then you lose the White House, a Republican comes in and he can just very quickly overturn that. So that's why you always want it to become law. You've mentioned some of the things that Trump has mentioned over the past few days. He suggested a bunch of ideas to reduce gun violence. Let's go through some of those. So one idea that's really been mentioned a lot, getting a lot of attention, is the red flag laws. What are these laws? So basically, in its essence, it would allow a close family member or a law enforcement official, if they see what what we call red flags, anything that's concerning, they would be able to petition a judge basically to make sure that person cannot have access to guns, especially if they think this person is an imminent threat to either himself or herself or to others. A lot of times we've seen red flag laws be effective with suicide prevention, but mm-hmm. that's being increasingly pointed to as a potential solution in these shootings because we've seen, for example, the manifesto in the El Paso case. And we've seen in the Dayton shooter authorities have said he had created a hit list. I mean, those would seem to be these quote unquote red flags for authorities for close family members. So that would be one way of what members, all members say they would like to do, which is keep weapons out of the hands of dangerous people. Mm -hmm. So that's one idea that's been going through. Um, But did that depend on people close to these potential shooters flagging those people, right? It depends on the action of individual people. Exactly. And so that is one issue that it's incumbent upon a close family member to be able to go to authorities and tell them this. It also depends on how the laws are written to deal with the issue of due process. Because hypothetically, someone could just, if you don't like someone and don't think that they should have a gun, I mean, you theoretically could go and say like, yeah, this guy shouldn't, you know, have a weapon or a firearm. Now there are, in in legislation, there's usually safeguards for that. I, I was talking with Senator Marco Rubio on this issue this week. And he talked about how in his bill, there is a punishment for false claims to authorities. So you try to deal with it in that fashion. But due process is such an important issue for conservatives, especially worried about gun rights. They don't want weapons unnecessarily seized from people who do have a constitutional right to own them. So that balance is going to be a really tricky one to achieve. And what are Republicans saying now about these red flag laws? Is it something that has gotten a lot of traction? They're very warm towards it so far, especially early on. You saw Lindsey Graham, a Republican of South Carolina, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over gun policy. So that's very important, who is also very close to President Trump. He has come out for it and says he's going to push through legislation through his committee that is bipartisan, which is very important. President Trump has talked a lot about these red flag issues. He actually mentioned it. It was probably the most forward-leaning gun-specific policy that he mentioned in his speech on Monday, the the day after the weekend shootings. But I've actually started to hear um, some consternation from conservatives later this week as this kind of we all started to digest this bill. And some of the most pointed criticisms or concerns that I've heard from so far from uh, Senator Ted Cruz. Republican from Texas, clearly where uh, the shooting happened. He is is skeptical about the due process issue. Ben Sass has only said he really just needs to see the legislative language from Graham before weighing in. Mm -hmm. It's going to be not an easy issue to push. 
Right. And another piece of this that Trump has spoken a lot about are background checks. Mm -hmm. And he's spoken about that in the past, suggested that that might be a route worth pursuing. Have we seen any movement on background checks so far? Not yet in terms of actual substantive movement. Now, the president talks generally about expanded background checks. There is a bill to do that. Well, there are a couple of bills to do that. The one that does seem um, dead on arrival is the background checks legislation passed by the Democratic-led House earlier this year. That's the bill that the Democrats have been promoting in the aftermath of the shootings. And that's the bill that Democrats are trying to pressure Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to take up. But the Trump administration has already issued a veto threat on that bill. So let's um, let's set that aside. There is bipartisan expanded background check legislation that was written by Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania. They actually wrote this six years ago in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shootings in Newtown, Connecticut. It did not get 60 votes at that time. And at that time, the Senate was controlled by Democrats. Now the Senate is controlled by Republicans. So it's infinitely harder. But I will tell you, according to our reporting, we've spoken to both Senators Manchin and Toomey. They have been on the phone constantly with the president this week. Toomey told me at least three times since the shootings, at least and Manchin has spoken to Trump at least twice. And they stress that the president hasn't specifically endorsed their bill as of now in their private conversations. But he is very warm to the idea of background checks. Now, the problem is, you know, Manchin and Toomey are in the president's ear. So is the NRA. Right. What has the NRA said about background checks? The NRA is vehemently opposed to expanded background checks. They helped really uh, scuttle the effort in 2013. The NRA is always a powerful, potent force on Capitol Hill among Republicans. Uh, Wayne LaPierre, uh, the head of the NRA, had private conversations with Trump this week and, according to our reporting, warned him that endorsing background checks would make him lose a significant part of his political base. And if there's one thing we know about President Trump, it can't his, lose that base. You can't <laughs> lose that base. You know, his reelection strategy is all about turning out the base voters, whether it comes to guns or immigration or cultural issues or socialism. And that could be a very uh, resonating argument for President Trump. And we've seen him kind of go out you know, go out front on some gun restrictions and then be kind of reeled back after um, an outcry from the NRA. So do we expect that pattern now where he's gone forward and he might backtrack again? We could. I mean, it is interesting, though, that Wayne LaPierre's call with Trump was on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, the president was still talking about background checks. And now we also know from the, the reporting that's been out there by our excellent colleagues at The Post and elsewhere that the NRA is kind of in shambles right now. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of internal strife. And that actually matters because the legislative apparatus to kind of pressure Congress or to activate the grassroots, I mean, is undoubtedly weakened. And I think that does matter to some extent. Now, obviously, policy is the most important part at the end of the day. But I think you can't discount what is happening at the NRA and their diminished influence right now and and how that is affecting the gun debate. Can you just lay out why their influence is diminished right now? So there is a lot of um, internal turmoil. There has been a lot of senior officials who have exited the NRA. One of the most people relevant to Congress who had left recently is Chris Cox. He was the chief lobbyist at the NRA. He has every Republican lawmaker's phone number. He is what one source described to me as a whisperer to you know Republican lawmakers. And he and Wayne LaPierre had met with uh, Trump in the aftermath of the Parkland shootings um, when it looked like the president was going to endorse more gun restrictions. And then the three men met and then they were able to skip, uh, pull him back. And losing those voices really does matter. Mm-hmm. Um and you, I, I hesitate to draw a strong, you know, correlation and causation, but it's definitely a factor.
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. For the current debate. All right. I want to pivot to talk a little bit about some ideas Trump has thrown out there that are focused less on guns and more on technology. So Trump suggested that the public lessen exposure to what he called gruesome and grisly video games. Do we have any specifics about what he might be suggesting in regards to video game regulation? I had spoken. I had asked the White House about that shortly after his speech because we've seen a lot of experts downplay that link between video games and violent behavior. I mean, they say the problem is guns and access to firearms. I did not get an answer back <laughs> from the White House. I mean, don't quite know what he means. Like, is he proposing legislation somehow restricting video games or whatnot? It is one of the areas that Senate Republicans are exploring. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has asked three powerful committee chairmen to kind of look at different parts of addressing the issue of this mass violence. And video games is one of them. Um, but it's also hard to see at this point how far that goes, whether that turns into actual legislation or not. All right. And what about online hate? The White House invited top tech companies to come to the White House this upcoming Friday and discuss the rise of violent online extremism. Is that a sign that Trump might be willing to, let's say, focus more federal resources on combating the rise of, of online extremism? That's a that's a difficult question to answer at this point. Again, that was another question I'd asked the White House and they did not answer, did not get back to me. And I think a lot of what he had laid out is very vague. I mean, red flag laws are probably the most specific uh, policy proposals that he had laid out on that speech on Monday. But everything else is just kind of 30,000 foot level. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where the specifics really does matter. I mean, are you talking about legislation? Are you talking about administrative action or what are, are you just talking about a cultural change in society? where you kind of just downplay video games and like play less video games. I, I, we don't quite know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But I think the focus, though, here is and what certainly Democratic lawmakers are trying to keep their focus on and some Republican lawmakers as well is guns. I mean, you can talk about mental health. You can talk about video games. You can talk about um, access to you know extremism online. But at the end of the day, they're saying we got to focus on the core issue, which is access to firearms. And it does seem like we might be at a unique moment in history for this to actually change. We have, as you mentioned, a weekend NRA. We have some Republican lawmakers suggesting they might be on board for some sort of minor mm-hmm. gun reform. Do you feel like we're at a unique moment in history to see change on, on gun control laws? It's hard to say. I mean, I've seen a lot of these debates on Capitol Hill before, and obviously none have, with perhaps one exception, there was an expanded legislation that passed under the Trump administration that uh, required mandatory um, reporting of background check issues to the the NIC system. But in terms of actual what the advocates call gun safety measures, it's difficult to see. And one a smart point that one advocate pointed out to me this week was that when it comes to shootings, the public attention to them fades away so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, they happen at a unfortunately regular pace nowadays. But even with something as horrific as this, sometimes this can diminish from the public's conscious and the public's memory. So it's hard to sustain that momentum. The Parkland uh, shootings were actually an aberration where the activists, the student activists from the high school, really um, forced the nation to keep their attention on this issue. And perhaps it could be different now. 
But it's just the kinds of large scale changes such as expanded background checks or whatnot. It's just been very difficult to see advance in under any scenario. And when we talk about presidential power in this context, it's interesting to think about the ways a president could keep this as part of the conversation. Exactly. And it's a lot of, again, keeping the pressure publicly, which is what the which was what President Obama tried to do in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shootings. And it got to the point that you you fell, you know, five or six votes short in the Senate at advancing an expanded background checks bill through the chamber, which President Obama very much supported at the time. But since Trump doesn't have a sustained focus on a lot of things, does the sustained focus um, stay on guns? I don't know. I'm not I'm not convinced of that yet. Midweek, Trump traveled to Dayton and El Paso the sites of these mass shootings. And and he was greeted by protesters in both of those cities, which seems very unusual for a president visiting a city who's faced tragedy to, to be met with a, a, an unwelcome moment. Is that as unusual as it seems? I think what this particular president has has really struggled with one of the traditional roles of any president, which is the comforter-in-chief role. We all remember President Obama's really raw emotion after Sandy Hook. We remember President Bush um, right after 9-11 and his consoling the nation. This president, President Trump, is not that kind of leader. It just has never been part of his political DNA. And I think that's why a lot of times he struggles with that. And, you know, we've had people on the ground in El Paso, particularly, and, and talking to a lot of the residents there. And they feel that his the president's rhetoric had contributed to this culture of animus towards Mexicans, animus towards immigrants, animus towards Latinos, which is such a big part of the El Paso community, which is right on the border. And you've seen particularly uh, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's now running for president. He's from El Paso, really channeling that anger, Mm -hmm. channeling that grief of his constituents who are really mad at President Trump for what they say, the climate that he has helped create. As we approach the weekend, which will be about one week after those shootings. Do we have any clarity around where Trump stands on guns or what's going to happen next? It seems like he wants to do something. I think that's pretty clear. One of the details in our story was that he has already started talking about a Rose Garden signing ceremony for legislation, which it seems a little premature right Mm. now, but it does seem like he does want to take some action. But again, any sort of trying to read the tea leaves of what President Trump wants to do has to come with a very hefty grain of salt. You know, guns are always a difficult issue for any Republican lawmaker, Republican Party, especially in the aftermath of a tragedy like this, when it seems like the public sentiment goes towards uh, more gun restrictions. So that's always a very uh, difficult political calculus. But at the same time, you have a president who's just been so inconsistent on so many things including guns. So a lot of times it's who has whispered in his ear last and also um, what he is, you know, ultimately persuaded of at the end of the day. All right, Sangman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Heads up, we'll be off next week, but we will be back the week after that with a new episode for you. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the patient Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. 
Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.